Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show. This week we are talking about the energy space. Is it a bonanza time? Is it a bust time? All will be revealed as we look at the different factors affecting energy prices and how you can profit from them. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Laurentiel. Thank you for having me on the show, Mr. Baxter. And one thing I can assure you, I'm never shy of is, of course, energy, which all happens to be the topic of conversation today. <laughs> We're going to talk about the energy bonanza or bust and key infliction point right now. Does it go up? Does it go down? Plenty of questions. Certainly is. And energy, I think, is, uh, is the mainstay of the global economy. So uh, getting this one right is a, is a pretty important call. And we're at a pivotal time, as you rightly say. And uh, I definitely have a very clear view on that. So maybe we might start articulating it. Well, let's dial it back a little bit. Let's talk about what the energy sector has done this year. It's been the best performing sector year to date. Mm. Why is that? Look, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, energy has. It's been the the, the, the the sector that's defied the market. If you look at a chart for you know, equities are down 20, 25%, yet the energy sector is up, you know, best part of 30% over that same time frame. And the reason, I guess, for that decoupling um, is that, you know, energy typically is a reasonably inelastic demand product. What I mean by that, almost irrespective of price, there's a demand for the underlying commodity. And as the world's come out of lockdown, or at least most of the world's come out of lockdown, your know, demand has been picking up quite strongly. And then when you layer over the top of that, some issues on the supply side of energy through geopolitics, obviously with the conflict in Ukraine and so on, it's, it's, it's gone to an extent where it's got limited supply, robust demand. And as you know from any level of economic study, if you've got limited supply and robust demand, prices move higher. Absolutely. It's been the, 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 the tale all, all year, and we've made some great money out mm. of the energy market, as I know you have as well. Question for you, AB, the big one at that is, does that continue? So let's talk about maybe some of the factors that, that may or may not push prices higher, starting with Europe. Mm. Well, look, the, the whole notion of, you know, can it go higher is such a difficult psychological point to look at when you talk to investors, especially when people are new. If you look at a chart that's, you know, oh, it's pretty much up at its high for the year, you, know, you might look at a 12-month chart. You think, well, where else can this go? And actually, true story. Many years ago, we, you know, it, it, it's ridiculous that this is a true story. Um, I had a client on the uh, uh, in the office, actually, and they were looking at one of the monitors in the boardroom. And we're going, oh, we're recommending this. And they go, no, you can't buy that. Look how high it is. And so, well, what do you mean? He said, like, it's right up. There's not any. There's no more room left on the monitor for it to go up. <laughs> and so, change the scale and make it fit. Oh, and that, now it can go up. And true story. Um, but the, um, the the reality is, when something looks quite high, it's quite hard for people to hit the buy button because you know the the, the widely held misbelief is to make money in the stock market, you buy low and sell high. Um, What's wrong with buying high and selling higher? It's the same same problem. You're going to make money, which is great. Plus, if you're using you know some derivatives work to to assist you on the way, it can become um, yeah a very very lucrative side of things. So, yeah, I think I mean energy prices and, and and energy instruments to invest in, whether that be individual stocks, whether it's an ETF, whether it's commodity uh, based uh, investments, they do look quite firm. But I think there's significant upside, and I'll outline the case I think uh, for that right now. Well, before we go through the opportunities, let's talk about what could push prices higher. So let's start with Europe in terms yep. of their gas situation. So, yeah, I mean, Europe is very dependent on, on, on Russia for its imports of natural gas, which, of course, is, is, is the main thing used for generating energy and heating. Uh, you know, we're going into winter. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, if it's a cold winter, there's going to be a huge, huge demand uh, for heating and natural gas on the back of that. Yet, if you look at what Germany's got, there's plenty of gas, but storing it is quite problematic. You can't have a couple of boxes of it around the back of your house. It, you know, the storage facilities take quite some time to build and, and so on. So Germany actually only has about 
two months of natural gas supply based on its winter consumption. That's not a lot of time. It's not when you've had such a, a massive disruption to your supply. So if we look at the Nord Stream pipelines from Russia into Germany, uh, one is uh, effectively not complete. The other one has been sabotaged or, or has had decommissioned. a decommissioned or an, an accident of some description that's rendered it not working. So, you know, that's a real problem for Europe. And you could argue that you get your gas from somewhere else, but then you've got to build ports and have the plumbing and pipe work to take it in and storage facility. You know, none of these things are a five-minute fix. There's Decades. a really enormous amount of infrastructure that's required to do that. So on the back of that, the actual spot demand, not stockpiling, but spot prices where you have to buy for delivery now uh, is likely to move up considerably just based on that supply-demand equation. So yeah, Europe's in for a tough time and it already is. I mean, you can see you know, the European equity markets have suffered. Um, we'll exclude the UK from this because that's got its own own series of political problems right now, but uh, certainly, um, you know, Europe's in for a pretty tough time and having to buy higher energy prices, particularly uh, when you consider energy is priced in US dollars, and we've got that rampant strong US dollar right now. It also means you're not just contending with a, a higher commodity price per se, but it's amplified by that higher US dollar as well. Gee whiz, it's tough out there. Mm. And uh, that, that case for gas, as you mentioned, is, is certainly quite apparent. What about oil? And I guess the the segue we can use for this is in, in the US in mm. terms of their strategic reserves. What's the story there? Yeah, look, uh, in, in the US, uh, uh, in Australia, we have a strategic reserve of petrol and we just keep it in America, uh, which kind of it is, is a bit quite of a weird, yeah. peculiar, but there we go. Um, so the US strategic petroleum reserve is designed to um, keep an amount of petroleum on standby in the event of a disruption to supply, uh, calamitous events in the world, you know, conflict, those sorts of things. So. To put this into context, um, the strategic reserves is its lowest level since 1983. Um, currently, just around 400 million barrels and dropping because the Biden administration have just released another 15 million barrels to the market in an attempt. And the reason they're doing this is to try and rein in inflation by keeping commodity prices down. Um, there's a big flaw in that argument, which I'm sure we'll get to in a few moments' time. Now, if you look at the contrast of that, when Biden took office, uh, there were 638 million barrels uh, of pe uh, petroleum reserve that were kept. So they're about a third of the way through and counting in terms of that strategic reserve. You know, arguably at a time when geopolitics are all over the place and, and you know, there's a very real probability of an escalation in uh, the, the conflict in Europe. You know, you've got China and Taiwan um, involved with each other. And of course, you know, the, the crowning glory to all of this is the US announces, oh, we're going to release a million barrels of oil a day. So the Saudis cut oil production by two million barrels a day. And I guess when you're sitting atop, uh, you know, the world's biggest oil reserve, which obviously the Saudis are, um, that's a game you're always going to win because at some point the US won't be able to continue releasing its strategic reserve because there won't be any left. Uh, and the Saudis can stymie supply as much as they'd like. Uh, and, and, and the US has stated that you know, when oil gets down to 65, they'll replenish that reserve. I don't actually see oil getting down to $65 anytime soon, particularly given the production cuts in OPEC. You know, this is very politically motivated. Understand that, and there's been a huge shift in politics on the on on the world stage. You know, with you know, if you think about sort of you know, Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, three countries that are very clearly aligned at the moment, and none of them are really aligned toward U.S. Uh, U.S. best interests. So, question for you, AB: Does the U.S. have any kind of capacity to be able to refine more oil? 
No, um, that's the other challenge. That's that, scary. Um, insofar as um, U.S. oil refining capacity, now I'm, you're testing my statistics here, Mitch. Um, the U.S. oil refining capacity is at its lowest for eight years, uh, and part of that is because of the aged. Uh, and I'm not going to say decrepit, but certainly the aged infrastructure that's left in the U.S. now for refining oil, uh, and it's running at yeah maximum capacity as it has been now for for quite some time. Um, and when you have old plants and uh, processing facilities, you know, being redlined and working at full capacity around the clock, 24/7, things start to go wrong. It requires maintenance, shutdowns, and things like that. So, yeah, there isn't a great deal of uh, further refining capacity that they have to to to, to refine crude into petroleum, for example. And I, I think I'm right in saying that at this point in time, there are absolutely no applications for a new refiner in the US. Uh, and you can kind of understand why that is. And we, we've talked about this before, I think, when we, we discussed black energy. But, you know, given the political landscape and uh, and the environmental uh, focus right now, if you're an oil company or a refiner, you're probably not wanting to look down the barrel at, you know, $50, $60 billion outlay to build a refinery that may or may not get government approval to operate, depending on the political climate at the time. So that increase in supply of refining, that cavalry is not coming over the hill either. It's tough when you think about the points we've just made, limited supply in Europe for the gas, same thing for the US with oil. You spoke about OPEC. So just for the benefit of our listeners there, AB, could you talk to us about what OPEC is and how it works? Yeah, OPEC is, uh, is it's uh, effectively, it's the cartel, can you say that? That, you can. Uh, uh, that, um, that control oil prices. And it's probably the only legalized cartel in the world. So a group of countries that are members of OPEC, which is the oil producing, exporting countries, uh, and, and between them is a, a, a committee, um, uh, they decide how much oil they're going to produce and export in the world. So they control price, right? Effectively, Basically. they are able to control the price of the commodity. It's the only, I think it's pretty much the only commodity in the world where you know it's controlled by a cartel like that. And then outside of that, you've got non-OPEC member countries. Um, Venezuela is an example of that, which are you know often t- described as a rogue state because they don't comply with with OPEC's production. Um, you know, quotas and things like that. They just run their own race. Uh, and that may well just prove to be the saving grace for the US if they do a deal with Venezuela. Uh, it's only just down the road versus, you know, having oil imported from other parts of the world um, for them being in sort of Latin America. And, and, and it may well be that there's a bounty of, of oil that can come in that way. Um, but yeah, OPEC have, have had that ability to to control oil prices. And if you think about like the 1974 oil shock and the subsequent damage that did to global economies, um, yeah, that was OPEC just deciding to turn the turn the tap down and export less oil. And OPEC have cut production by two million barrels per day. Yeah. Not to mention the fact I remember reading I couldn't tell you the exact numbers off the top of my head. But many of the countries weren't meeting their quotas anyway. Yeah, well, Russia's part of that, and, and there'd be others in there as well that drag the chain a little bit because, again, it's uh, if you've got a limited amount of a resource, pumping it out of the ground and exporting it to keep prices low is the exact opposite of really what you want to do. You want to preserve the reserves that you've got and only sell them when prices are at the highest possible price uh, that you can get for it. That's how you make money. And and it's a free market. But you know, you can you can't imagine that OPEC would have that in mind by restricting production and keeping prices high. Of course not. Not when you know oil can be down at ten or fifteen bucks a barrel, but that doesn't necessarily serve the agenda of the producing countries. Uh, and as I say, there's a huge, huge shift in in geopolitics. You know, the US and the Saudis, for example, through history have had a uh, a very strong uh, diplomatic uh, relationship. But really, since the second Gulf War, that relationship I think has been somewhat strained. Uh, and so, you know, maybe Saudi's not playing ball as much as it used to uh, with the US. 
So is this a case of geopolitics across the board, AB, that's really limiting? I think, yeah, it certainly is to an extent. Um, you know, I think, you know, politics and economics, when they're mixed together, never really bode very well for, for an economy. And there'll be plenty, we could maybe cover that in another podcast rather than sort of politicise this one. Um, but, you know, much for what we've talked about, not being, you know, optimistic and, and shiny and bright and exciting. Uh, the reality is there are some cracking money-making opportunities within the narrative that we've just provided. Well, let's get into those. Mm. So you spoke about ETFs, you spoke about individual shares. Yeah. Where do you start if you are looking to get exposure to the sector? Look, you know, in, in, in these times of higher higher um, crude oil prices, you know, owning oil companies is good because they have, uh, from a profitability perspective, uh, because, you know, the margin for what they receive for selling their product is much higher and they tend to do quite well from an earnings and, and distribution dividend pay, uh, paying uh, perspective. Interestingly enough, most of the big oil companies now have got you know substantial interest in renewables as well, uh, where they've taken you know the money they've made from oil and, and they've divested it into into renewables to an extent. So yeah, they, they are very much in that space too. So yeah, higher oil prices typically results in um, a higher profit margin for those companies individually that are there. Any I mean, names that come to mind? Sorry yeah, to cut you off. Yeah, Philips, Conoco, you can look at Exxon. I mean, they're the big guys, Mobile. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're the big guys. If you're looking in the UK, you know, British Petroleum. Um, yeah, all, all the big guys that are there um, uh, and well well narrated. Um, I think um, if you um, then look in the ETF space, which is more directly where I, I tend to trade, XLE is one of the exchange-traded funds, which is a more broad-based energy uh, ETF. Uh, it's had a great run, it's about you know, 83, 84 bucks a, a unit right now. USO, which is the US oil ETF, that one can be a bit of a wild card for people. Yeah. Um, and I'd be fairly careful. In fact, I mean, you could argue, you know, the, the energy sector itself is is typically quite volatile, um, you know, and more of a higher risk sector. I, I think also when you talk about risks in the energy sector, it's more of a risk to the upside than the downside. You know, there's a disruption to yeah, production. Yeah, there's an explosion on an oil platform. We just in the US has been a hurricane, which has restricted um, production facilities and so on. So there's always more risk on the supply side than than, than on the demand. I think. Um, but USO, yeah, that can be a bit of a wild beast, and uh, because of the very nature of how it's made up, which is really um, futures contracts and uh, and that ability to roll futures each and every month costs money to do so. If you look at USO on the grind, it's actually a, a depreciating asset. So if you held it for six to twelve months, it's going to lose value assuming oil prices don't move over that time just with the cost of uh, of the way it tracks the oil market. Whereas XLE, I think, is a you know, more broad base. You've got UNG if you want to be in natural gas as well. Yep. But XLE is working quite nicely for me. The volatility is um, pretty good. We've got a trade running on at the moment in the ETF Ultimate Investor Portfolio for those people that subscribe to it. And um, and, and that trade at the moment is uh, is, is just looking quite nice. be 25 3% for a couple of weeks. Absolutely. There's so many ways to play it too. Mm. A lot of these ETFs also have options markets that's open, correct, yeah. so you can overlay derivatives with those exactly as well. Exactly right. And that's really where you can sort of, you know, augment uh, augment your returns a little bit. But, uh, you know, just be careful about being short energy at any time because, you know, it is something that can bite you um, quite badly. Um, there's always risk, as I say, on that side of the coin. Uh, I always feel that there's more risk of oil prices spiking higher than spiking lower. So question for you, AB, if you're an investor right now listening to this and you wanted to get some exposure to the energy market, mm. where do you actually start from a research perspective and potentially as a first trade? Yeah, I mean, how much research do you want to do? I mean, you can look at charts on on, on the commodity prices and try and make something out of that. You can look at 
seasonal demand. But all of that requires a, a fairly keen eye and some fairly sharp tools in order to sculpt out of it a strong view. I think you know what we've talked about here from a fundamental perspective is a very broad-based bullish uh, case for energy, even though prices look high, uh, they can indeed go higher. And I think the technicals probably validate that. As I say, a break of X84 on XLE would be quite a nice break of resistance and setting itself up for a further leg up. So, you know, that sort of research we've kind of done candidly in, in this conversation. The question then is how best to exploit it. And oftentimes when people are brand new, they think, oh, I'll just buy some shares in a company, but they may choose you know, a company that hasn't laid off its foreign currency risk and, and, and doesn't perform as well as it could or should um, uh, versus you know, investing in the broad-based ETF. So if you're brand new, I'd probably take the ETF over the other options that are available there. Uh, and as someone like myself that's you know, pretty experienced and you know, is a sophisticated investor, that's exactly what I'm doing too. I'm just using derivatives to help uh, put a bit of a ribbon and wrapper around that to augment those returns a little bit more. Absolutely. And I know you've made some cracking gains this mm. year. So congrats to you. Great, great analysis, great trading. <laughs> Might have to take you out for a coffee on the back of that. That'd be nice, actually. Should we Absolutely. go there now? Only if they're using renewable energy to heat the water up. Or we can go to the pub if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, too. But no, it's a very, very interesting space. And we're in a very fragile situation right now. And when things are fragile, you know, if you're the US particularly, you'd be fairly, fairly concerned about the fact that you've depleted your reserves at a time when geopolitically, given things are quite fragile, that's the time when you probably want to bolster your reserves, not be depleting them. But again, that mix of politics and economics are, no pun intended, oil and water and probably don't go together. <laughs> so energy bonanza or bust, I think this is a pretty clear outcome, pretty clear winner. It's a bonanza. Bonanza time, keep making that profit all the way to the bank. You heard it here first. Thank you, AB. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Anytime. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating, and we'll look forward to hosting you next week.